Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTSNet2Go. In this podcast, you will be exposed to one of the roundtables that will show you what surgeons today are talking about. Good afternoon, and welcome to this series of roundtable discussions here at EACT in Vienna. Um, we are here today to talk about minimal access mitral surgery, and I have with me today uh, Enoch Akora from uh, Middlesbrough, and Patrick Perrier from um, Bad Neustadt in Germany, and Peyman Zadrinia from um, uh, the Maastricht. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Um, so we thought why we'd start by talking about um, your UK mini mitral trial to lead us into our discussions. Um, tell us what you've been doing and how things are going. Okay. So um, I started doing mini invasive mitral valve surgery about four or five years ago. And when I started, the first thing I wanted to do is go back and look at the evidence for and the pinster technique. And actually, the first thing I found was the ISMIC consensus document from 2010, I think. And I think Patrick Perry was one of the um, authors of that document. And uh, the main finding of that document was that there wasn't enough good quality data, particularly data that compares minimally invasive and conventional surgery. And the main recommendation was that there should be more comparative data because without that sort of data, it's really hard to say whether mini is better, the same or worse than conventional surgery. And that was how my interest in the subject started really. And then of course, like everyone else, I attended three or four meetings where there was always this topic, mitral valve repair, conventional versus mini, what is the best? And you end up with two surgeons or two groups of surgeons arguing about which is the best. And it was quite clear to me that there's equipoise about this subject in the community as a whole. Uh, and and that's, that's, that was really the genesis of the trial. So um, over a period of two years or so, along with uh, some colleagues in the United Kingdom, we tried to wrestle with the idea of designing a trial that answers this question. Uh, like all surgical trials, it, it's a complex trial because uh, they're, they're very difficult to do. And there's some real issues, whether it's the size of the population that you need or how you cope with the expertise in a trial like this or what the outcome you want to measure is that we, we had to wrestle with. Uh, but eventually we got a protocol together that was funded by the NHS who funds uh, healthcare in the UK. So the UK Mini Mitral Trial started recruiting about 18 months ago uh, and we've recruited uh, 70 patients so far. We're looking to recruit 400 patients. And it really looks to compare minimally invasive and conventional surgery with the primary outcome being one that was determined by our patients actually, which is how quickly you get better after your surgery comparing the two techniques. So that's, that's the primary outcome of the trial. And obviously patient selection plays an important role in, in any surgical procedure. With respect to minimal, minimally invasive mitral surgery, and how would you guys choose to select patients? And what are your, if we start and work our way around and then maybe incorporate that in how you're choosing your patient selection for the trial. Would you like to? I think, uh, I mean, I'm very opinionated about that with regard that I don't think that um, 
you have you need to ask whether this is a superior procedure, but whether which patients will benefit the most from this kind of surgery. Yeah, because at, at the end it is a minimal access surgery. You are doing actually almost the same, yeah, but through a smaller incision. So the anatomy of the patient, the condition of the patient is very important. So I, I do a lot of extensive uh, operative planning yeah, to see whether my patients are suitable for that. Being suitable is, uh, doesn't also mean <laughs> will benefit from the procedure. If you have an 85 years old male and you can do the procedure maybe uh, with, with uh, minimal invasively, maybe even th those patients are more, uh, will benefit more from a cat catheter-based treatment. So these two um, very important questions, being suitable or and uh, being able to benefit from procedure is very important in, in preoperative uh, workup which we do in, in, the, in a multidisciplinary fashion. Uh, but the main uh, contraindications uh, to say uh, it's not the wolf, uh, you can do any pathology endoscopically, uh, but it is the patient as a whole uh, whether will benefit. And the main things are if the patient, you cannot do a safe peripheral cannulation, if you cannot enter chest uh, safely, if you cannot uh, condition uh, uh, and give a cardioplegia safely. That are the main uh, pillars of whether you uh, you are suitable for this procedure or not. Dr. Perry, would you have anything to add to that? Yes, I think that in our institution we do about between 400 and 500 a year. So, and we've been doing this for uh, 16 years. So we have a high volume. Yeah. experience. Yeah. Uh, our main discussion is does the patient need surgery or not surgery? Mm -hmm. And then if the patient needs surgery there are very very few contraindications for minimally invasive. Uh, one would be uh, the, the, the heavily calcified uh, annulus. Another one would be uh, of course, if there are some uh, vascular problems, so uh, uh, lung adhesions, mm -hmm. which are not suitable, and uh, artic regurgitation that may be too, uh, too, too, too important to have a good myocardial protection. Those are rare cases. Otherwise, all our patients are going through minimally invasive, and we can do mitral associated with tricuspid, associated with ablation, and yeah. This is where we are today. But of course, to reach this point, we needed to climb the ladder and to go through all the steps. And so for the tri from a trial perspective, are you recruiting all types of surgical pathology? What's the... Yeah, so breakdown? I mean, I agree with everything that's been said before. For the trial, the inclusion criteria is patients who have degenerative mitral valve disease, because right. we're primarily looking at patients having mitral valve repair surgery. Okay. We're including patients who have who need an ablation or have a small PFO, etc. We've excluded patients though who need tricuspid valve surgery because actually then you start to muddy the waters quite a bit in a trial like this. And I think it's fair to say that again there is some equipoise about how we manage tricuspid valve regurgitation in the setting of mitral regurgitation. So we felt that was a difficult group to include. So the trial it includes 
quite a broad base of patients, but we've excluded those particular ones. We've also excluded patients who've got acute infective endocarditis and patients who are having reduced surgery. Okay, that's an interesting question. Do you both do you feel that for minimal access surgery that uh, patients with infective endocarditis would form uh, a suitable patient subgroup, or would you exclude those patients generally? Which patients? Uh, patients with endocarditis, would you tend to exclude those patients from minimal access surgery or not? I mean, with, with regard to the valve pathology, I think the only issue is if you have a lot of calcification mm -hmm. and you have to treat the calcification, uh, you have to do something. I think that is one of the uh, major uh, difficulties endoscopically. Otherwise, uh, endocarditis uh, I mean, can be treated endoscopically unless you, ha you are not sure about the involvement of aortic valve. My, uh, Do you agree? Yeah, I think that endocarditis is, you may end up with a very atypical operation. You most of the time have to tailor the operation to the patient. The, the, the first thing is you, have, is you have to resect all infected tissue and then you repair how you can. So now we would, we would do endocarditis without any problem. But in the beginning, we were very careful. Mm. We were watching very well the, the, the preoperative examination, echo and all things. And, and we tried to imagine how difficult the operation would be. If the operation would be too difficult to imagine, to plan, then we would have to go through sternotomy because in the end, the most important thing is that you can repair the mitral valve. And this, you don't want to compromise on this. And so taking that onwards, repair versus replacement, you all agree that you can equally efficiently replace as well as repair through minimal access approach? Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think in our trial, we're looking at patients with degenerative mitral valve disease, and we're hoping that, and we're expecting a mitral valve repair rate in excess of 90% uh, for, for this group of patients. So minimal access surgery is a heterogeneous group of operations ultimately and different units are doing different things through different incisions. Um, how, what kind of breakdown do you all have in your practice? I know we were discussing earlier about totally endoscopic mitrals. Do you want to sort of take that on and uh, discuss? I, I, I think uh, uh, the endoscopic uh, approach uh, gives an extra dimension to the operation and extra constancy. If you're looking through the incision and the mitral valve and anatomy of the patient differs, and you, you will have a lot of variability on the exposure. So the endoscopic view gives a constancy to the operation and I think that is the cornerstone of, of, uh, of minimal access mitral valve surgery. Um, but that is, that is also the most difficult part uh, with regard to the learning curve. Uh, so I'm not saying that you should do the whole operation endoscopically, that is may, maybe in the later phase, but at least uh, addressing the mitral valve uh, should be done uh, endoscopically because you, you have the best view and you can go almost in your ventricle and so you, you evaluate your subvalvular apparatus. So that is also the, the way we, uh, we, I mean, I started, of course, I had the luxury of having a simulation, so I started um, doing a combined direct vision with, uh, with the use of endoscope. Uh, so the uh, mitral valve part was from the beginning endoscopically 
but of course closing of the atrium that is not necessary to do with endoscopic in the beginning. But after adding a 3D vision, you can do the, uh, the whole operation endoscopically uh, nowadays. Dr. Perry, you've been through the learning curve, you've seen it from the beginning. Where, how, tell us about how your incisions have evolved, how you've gone, how things have changed over the years. So the learning curve is a very interesting thing, is that um, before we started, we prepared ourselves very carefully, our team in our hospital, and we had a goal. What our goal was to work totally endoscopic, but we had no experience with endoscopes and those kind of things. So the, I don't know, maybe 150 or 200 first patients, we did this through with direct vision. Mm -hmm. uh, and the major, the, the major change was to go from serenotomy to lateral thoracotomy and with, with, with all the, this is the major change. But then we started by doing with, with, by working with direct vision, we started to try to understand how the endoscope were, were, were working and, and we tried to work progressively. So you can, to go on totally endoscopic, you can, it's a very smooth uh, change that you can control by yourself. And one day you say, oh, I can do the whole operation uh, endoscopically. So the, the advantage is that not only you have a very good exposure of the mitral via, you see very well, especially with 3D, and so you can really decrease the size of your incision. You don't use the retractor, and you are really mini you are as minimally invasive as possible. And are you doing the majority of your minimal access that endoscopically also these days? Oh, 100%. I, I, when you're used to this, I mean, there is no way you can try to see and have a direct vision. No way. And how? Yeah, so I think expertise in a trial like this was, was one of the big things we had to wrestle with because how do you, you know, how do you define expertise? And you want to do a trial across the whole country involving a whole lot of surgeons. So we had to, um, we had to uh, essentially design a trial that accounts for that. So the way the trial is designed is an expertise-based randomization process. So basically, patients are randomized to two arms. So one arm is a minimally invasive surgeon who only does the minimally invasive surgery, and the other arm is a conventional surgeon who only does the conventional surgery. And what we've done uh, is to try and set what we call an expert, a minimally invasive expert or a conventional expert. Now you can imagine that that immediately starts to raise a huge amount of debate amongst the community uh, about what do you call an expert and how many do you have to have done. And actually, uh, we're all familiar with the paper from Leipzig from um, Professor Moyle's group, which showed that actually people behave very differently. So in this paper, if I recall, there were three, three groups. So one group really didn't have a learning curve at all. One group never learned the operation, didn't matter how much they did. And then one group exhibited what we would recognize as a learning curve. Uh, so we use that data. There's another um, paper uh, published in 2013, I think, in the Annals of um, Thoracic Surgery, or Annals of Cardiac Surgery, which interviewed 20 minimally invasive surgeons. I'm not sure whether you're one of them, uh, Patrick. <laughs> um, but, but there are lots of names that we'll recognize in there. And they were asked, how many operations do you think a surgeon needs to become uh, confident and competent at doing this operation? And the, the answer was 20, actually. So actually what we did was set up a panel uh, which involved surgeons and patients and the providers uh, and essentially we came up to a number of 50. So 
to qualify as an expert in minimally invasive surgery for this trial, you have to have done at least 50 operations and have to have been doing the operation for at least a year. Now, I accept that there will be some criticism about that, but actually we just needed a definition so that we can do the trial, and that's where we've ended up. And so it'll be interesting to see what the mean number of surgeons, surgeries that the surgeons in the trial would have done and, and, and what, what the outcome is like at the end of that. Is it all totally endoscopic as well, or are you doing through direct vision? Well, as, as Patrick said, the big change is from stenotomy to non-stenotomy. Yeah. And actually, I imagine that in the group of surgeons within the trial, there'll be a okay. different levels along that on that journey from direct vision all the way to totally endoscopic. So like there's no Patrick. strict criteria as to what no. you count as minimally invasive. The definition of minimally invasive in this trial is that it has to be through a small anterolateral thoracotomy with peripheral cannulation using peripheral instruments and video assistance. Okay. And I think one one of the things that perhaps with with your in your experience, one of the things that's debated a lot, as you said, for the reason for designing a randomised control trial is does this does minimal access surgery confer any benefit to the patient are we are we aiming for equipoise or are we aiming to show that we can actually do better than through a stenotomy how what what do you feel um what's your experience in in your group of patients uh i think that the 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 british experience is very interesting because there is no properly scientific randomized trial comparing both techniques and, and, and it's a pity in fact. And so just like in most areas of cardiac surgery, we, we, we base our judgment just on uh, our feelings. And so it's very important to do this. I think that it would be critical to show that you can do ex exactly the same thing, that you can repair the same amount of valves with the same results on echo at discharge. It will be also very interesting to see that probably you use much less blood, which is an important component. And uh, what would be ideal but diffi difficult to show is that for the patient after surgery, the recovery is uh, easier and faster after minimally invasive surgery. It's something that we see every day in our wards, but we cannot we cannot put this into numbers. There are patients that would come to us one week after surgery and who would say to us, uh, we, I am in the same shape as when I entered the hospital. You will never see this after sternotomy. But okay. there are not all of them like this, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I think I agree. If you ask patients, and one of the things you, we did before this trial, we did a lot of focus group and patient interviews. Why, why do you want this minimally invasive keyhole operation? It's because they want to get better quicker. That's what, that's what the patient thinks they're getting. And actually, there, there are almost no trials that use that as an outcome. No. So we, we really, and I know Patrick says that, and I see patients like that who come in and you think, wow, you look absolutely fantastic. They're not all like that. And the question is, does this approach consistently allows you to get better quicker? The way we're measuring this in the trials, we've teamed up with an industry partner who uh, have made, manufactured a device called an accelerometer. So the patients wear an accelerometer for a week at time intervals throughout the operation. So we can see what they do. And at the end of the trial, we'll be able to look at what activity they've done, whether they're just lying in a bed or whether they're going out for a jog uh, and, and the quality of their sleep as well, which is another really important outcome for patients. So we will be able to shed some light at the end of this trial on that, on that very question that you asked. Excellent. And uh, what do you feel in your experience, do you, a similar thing you're seeing? I think in, in, in practice, uh, in Netherlands, uh, 
for the patients that we operate in, in the hospital, they are discharged as fourth or fifth operative day. And you, you see that they are, um, you, you have much quicker recovery. But of course you need uh, <laughs> uh, evidence for that to convince colleagues uh, um, to, um, to adapt this uh, technique. Because at the end, the adaptation rate of this technique, uh, even after 20 years, is, is uh, still very low. Um, and and, and there are, I mean, there are some genuine question. Why is that? Eh? I mean, of course, one is lack of evidence, but the other thing is m much more important is um, uh, because it is a difficult procedure to learn. Mm. And how can you help people to uh, to adapt that procedure? That, that's also, uh, I mean, that, that even if you have evidence. If you have still a procedure that's difficult, it's not going to be adapted. Look at the most simple operation of cardiac surgery is, uh, is aortic valve replacement. Aortic valve replacement through its mini sternotomy is maybe the most simple minimal access procedure, but still the adaptation rate is not high. But the adaptation rate of TAVI is uh, exponential. Why is that? Because it is a very simple procedure to perform. Uh, more reproducible in the hands of more surgeons. And that is also the thing that we have to consider uh, if we want to... Uh, uh, do you think there's, it's all learning curve or do you think cost plays a, a role in this? I mean, certainly in the NHS we're conscious about how much money we're spending with each procedure. Um, is that your experience um, in Germany, in the Netherlands? I think we are, we are talking about learning curve basically after Two paper, after two papers have been published, one mm. from Leipzig, one from uh, Italy. And those were learning curve from teams who really had started minimally invasive surgery. So uh, today the learning curve is different. Mm. There are some teams who are very well uh, organized, they can do this, so it's possible to go to see teams which are very well organized to pick up everything. There are some simulators, you can train, you can, so you can and you should dramatically reduce the learning curve and there is no way that patient, well, patient should not suffer from the introduction of this new technique. And I would say that if we have a proof, scientific proof, that minimally invasive is definitely better than, than sternotomy, this will push probably the, the and, and help the community to switch from yeah. sternotomy to minimally invasive. I, I completely agree and I feel very strongly about that because I think, I think certainly in the UK, that is, the, the, your, your point about slow adaptation is very correct. I mean, people have been doing this operation in the UK since 1995, 1996. Nin um, but less than 10, 15% of patients with isolated mitral valve disease get minimally invasive approach. And, and why is that? Well, because when you ask the conventional surgeon, they go, oh, because the way is the evidence that it's better. So I think it, there is a real onus to, and actually sometimes not that it's better, why is the evidence that it's safe? Why is the evidence that it's an effective treatment for this condition? You know, I think that there are lots of questions to answer, and that's why I think we need a trial, because I think you need to establish that this is a safe, effective therapy for this problem. It might have some advantages, but you know, I think in the UK setting, we just need to make sure that it's safe and as, as safe as, safe as, as. In, in, in the minds of, the, of other surgeons and also in the minds of the people who pay for the operation as well, of course, which is the NHS. And we're running out of time, but just to, to, as a final um, closing remarks, from a training perspective, 
tell us a little bit about simulation, how we're going to reduce that or train the new generation of surgeons from the beginning to do this? I think uh, simulation-based training and a pi air pilot-like training is the future of adaptation of technology in medicine. There are two variables that are determining the outcome uh, in what we do as surgeons. One is skills and the other is the variability of the anatomy. Now, there are multiple uh, randomized controlled trials across the all surgical specialties when they use simulation to adapt the new technology or to train uh, surgeons. And you see a benefit in skills development, but also benefit in clinical practice, making uh, fewer errors and so on and so on. Uh, simulation is not going to replace the clinical practice, but what it does, simulation is also not meant to create the same operation, only create a condition to train certain skills. Now, with regard to the endoscopic mitral, you are, I mean, at one, you have to have a transition working with long-shafted instrument on the monitors. It is logical that you need skills for that. I mean, it is not so that you see it on the monitor and the next day you are going to do it. So how to train yourself on that, that is, is not so difficult. So I think uh, simulation can help in that, shortening the learning curve, um, and it's what also we are doing actually in the EX uh, course that we organize. Uh. Thank you very much, everyone, for, for joining us today. Thank you for listening to CTS Net to Go, your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTSNet by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTSNet Video, by following at CTSNet.org on Twitter, or by liking CTSNet's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTSNet to Go. Have a great day.